Yo, so before we start, just a quick little programming note. Uh, I just wanted to mention, so before I did this podcast, I used to do a podcast called XO that actually has more subscribers than this podcast, but I put it aside to do this because I had to write a novel. So it's just been uh, sitting unloved for a while and uh, it's basically it's like a storytelling podcast sometimes it's about me sometimes it's about other people that Roger Swan documentary I did started as an episode of that podcast but I decided to resurrect it to start doing episodes again and I just wanted to mention it because people have told me that some of their favorite episodes of this podcast are the travel ones which obviously have not been able to happen So this episode of XO that I'm kicking things back off with is a story from when I was in Japan. So I just thought, you know, maybe you'll like it. If you liked those Japan episodes, maybe you'll like this episode as well. So it's called the XO Podcast, and if you have any trouble finding it, you know, just go to keithcourage.com and there's a link right there. But yeah, I hope you enjoy the the story, Black Coffee, that I put in the very first episode. That also came from XO. It's a pretty cool podcast, you know, if I do say so myself. So there's that, and uh, enough talking about my old love. Now back to my current love, how to write a novel. What I wanted to do this episode, to kick off the new year, last episode I talked about how things went in the year 2020 for my novel that I'm writing. The titular novel of the How to Write a Novel podcast, Explode, by Keith McNally. And I talked about how uh, that's been going. But this episode, I thought I'd talk about the other stuff, the other side projects and different various things I've brought up on this podcast. How did they go in 2020? Because I think there's some interesting developments. So one is uh, the Roger Swan documentary that I brought up here and there. This thing that... uh, I was working on for years and years and years this documentary that's assembled out of the YouTube footage of one of the old-school J-vloggers, one of the first people to go to Japan and to chronicle their whole trip, and then he unexpectedly died, and I put together like a chronicle of his last three, four years of his life based on his YouTube videos that he left behind, you know? It's like this digital footprint that now is left behind when someone passes away. And it took me forever to finish it because I was psyching myself up too much of like, what if I make it and no one cares? If I try to get this into like film festivals and stuff, how does that go? And it just became too stressful. And what finally cracked the code is lowering my expectations. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put it on YouTube and that's the end of it. I'm not going to think about it beyond that. And applying the same technique that I've been applying to my novel. Just work on it a little bit each day. And then next thing you know, as life just keeps on moving, as the days keep rolling by, just suddenly it's done. It's just like, oh my God, this thing that's been this kind of albatross, this anchor (laughs) around my neck all this time, it's just, it's done. And then right away, cool stuff started happening. This guy from Iwate Prefecture, Japan, who lives in the town Roger lived in when he passed away, that guy had connections to a film festival and like, man, where was it? Somewhere in the States? But anyway, yeah, all of a sudden I'm getting messages from people like, hey, maybe I can get you into a film festival. And it's like, it's almost like that visualization stuff I was talking about. 
It's like ironic, by not visualizing, by ignoring the outcome, by not grasping for these higher goals, they just started happening, <laughs> which is like, because I guess the ultimate thing is just, you've got to finish the project. You've got to finish the thing and put it out into the world, and maybe nothing will happen, but maybe something will. And the only way something can happen is for it to be done. That's really the most important part. And then uh, the guy, ultimately, he did not manage to get it approved for the film festival because it's a very niche topic. And, uh, you know, it's like very low res. It probably wouldn't project well. Various problems. The guy was very apologetic, but I was like, hey, dude, that's okay. Like, just the fact that you tried, that you even went through these processes for this thing I worked on, that's incredible validation. That's awesome. <laughs> and now I know that guy. Should I ever get to go to northern Japan, I got a connection. And I'm also glad to report that my Roger Swan documentary has over a thousand views, which I just think is so awesome. Because again, it's like I talked about it at the time when I put it out, but numbers on the internet are so weird, you know? Like a thousand views on a YouTube video is not a lot. Not in a world where, you know, I watched a video yesterday where it was just a guy goofing around with like a Hot Wheels branded computer and it had like two and a half million views, <laughs> you know? It's just nonsense. Or uh, me and my friend Ray, we do movie commentaries sometimes. We did one for this movie called The Babysitter. I never even heard of it. It's a Netflix movie. It's just Ray is a big fan of it. And it was not a very well-regarded movie, but he loved it. So he's like, we should do a commentary about that movie just because no one ever gives it any love. For whatever reason, the YouTube algorithm caught on to that thing and it literally gets a thousand views a day. Every day, a thousand people <laughs> start to watch that video. It's insane how many views it's got. But, but what does that really mean? Because the engagement is very small. Like, people are either looking for an official commentary track, not a fan commentary, or maybe they're just looking for the movie itself. But it's like a thousand people a day click on this thing and the vast majority of them bounce, you know? <laughs> they are not hanging around. So it's like, what do the numbers mean? Is that really valuable? Whereas the Roger Swan video may only have a thousand views, but it feels like a thousand actual views, you know? Like the people who watch that understand what it is and liked it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like it's, that feels way better to me, but it's just, it's great, a thousand. Like, I don't know, I just really, I didn't think it would actually get a thousand views, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And it's only going to get more, you know? Check in next year, it'll be a lot more. So that's just cool. It's just cool that after all the hand-wringing and worry and putting it off and stressing myself out about what is, what am I going to do with this documentary, when I just decided to not do anything, to just finish it and put it on YouTube, everything kind of worked out. And the film festival thing is like doubly... I mean, COVID happened, you know, even if, even if that Good Samaritan had gotten me into some film festival and it had gone down that road, all those roads fucking fell off a cliff right after that. So it wouldn't have gone anywhere anyway, <laughs> you know, fuck it. Everything worked out really well. Ah, uh, the other cool thing that happened. So I reference often the nonfiction book I wrote, like the reason I had the confidence to start not only working on a novel, but chronicling the process, doing a podcast about writing a novel, is because I wrote a nonfiction book. And just I felt that, like I leveled up, you know? 
just that feeling of actually finishing a project that big, writing a nonfiction book about video games, it was a lot easier than writing a novel, but it wasn't easy. It was very hard to do. But finishing it, it's like, okay, I've seen it. I've seen the whole path, the whole route, start, middle, and end. I've been through the whole thing. All I got to do is do that again now, but just while writing fiction, it's going to be harder. It's going to take longer. But I had confidence because the same process I used to finish that book is the same process I'm using now, and it's going great, slow and steady. And sort of a similar thing to the uh, Roger Swan documentary. In order to not stress myself out too much, I just put it on my website. Like, I still went through the processes. It's on Amazon. It's on fucking Smashwords, which is neat because then that stuff aggregates. Like, technically, if you go to, like, walmart.com, my book's there. It's fucking weird. <laughs> but I also put it out for free because I just, you know, it was all a learning process. Any expectation of success just stressed me out. It's like, not for now. That's not what's important for now. For now, what's important is that I actually fucking finish something in my goddamn life. <laughs> and I did. And I put it out, and you know, it's somewhat, somewhat popular. A certain scant slice of video game nerd found that book and seemed to like it. But what I didn't know is that under the surface, sebaceously forming, it had more fans than I knew about, because what happened is a sequel to that game came out, The Last of Us Part Two, And bizarrely, despite the fact that The Last of Us is such a good game and so emblematic of how to do storytelling properly in a video game at a like really high level, that I could write an entire fucking book about it, The Last of Us Part Two just sucked. It was terrible. I hated it. I didn't even finish it. I'm like, this is shit. God damn it, this sucks. And I was not alone. Extremely mixed reception. I mean, of course people liked it. Of course, I mean, the critics in particular gave it glowing reviews, but the fan backlash was significant. And the people who hated it, man, did we hate it. We fucking hated it bad. But what was cool is, as I played The Last of Us Part Two. And I just started tweeting about, like, what is happening with this game? This game sucks. I got to a part where you fucking stab a dog to death and you have to do it. You can't avoid it. And I think that's kind of emblematic of, of the game. It's like, ho-ho, oh, we're breaking expectations. We're upsetting paradigms. We're taking you to places you don't want to go, man. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I don't want to stab a dog. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> And you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to spoil it. Fuck that game. In the very next scene, you stab a pregnant woman to death. <laughs> and this is the hero of the game does this. It's like, I hate this. This is shit. So anyway, yeah, I posted on Twitter like, dude, what is up with this? I'm seeing why there's a backlash. This is trash. I can't believe this is the sequel to one of the greatest games of all time. So then a dude sent me a Twitter message who worked on the game. This was so crazy. So it ended up being these two guys who worked at the studio that made that game. They both got jobs there because of The Last of Us and how much they loved it. And it was like, they did it, amazing. They made it to the company and now they're working on the sequel to this incredibly influential game. And as they got deeper and deeper into the project, they were like, what is this thing we're making? What the hell is this project? How is this the thing? Because they also hated it. They also thought it was really bad. But they couldn't tell anyone, you know? Non-disclosure agreements and just... 
you know, secrecy. You're not allowed to talk to the outside world about it. And then once the game came out and there was this big backlash, that was one thing. But they said while they were working on it, it wasn't that way. They were among the very few that felt negatively about this project. Within the studio, people thought they were making this great piece of subversive art. So these two dudes were like trying to talk to whoever they could talk to, trying to bring some balance to the fucking process. And they were getting nowhere, they were just getting stonewalled. To the point that they said it's like they felt like they were crazy. Like years of going to work every day and hating the thing you're working on and knowing it's bad. Knowing that the reaction's gonna be bad. Being just disappointed by this thing. But everyone around you thinks it's great. Everyone around you thinks that you're fucking shattering the paradigm and all this fucking mega horse shit. So yeah, these two guys, they said they were at the, uh, just in the cafeteria one day talking about like, what are we gonna do here? How did, do we end up in this situation? This is so weird. And it came up that they had both read my book. And they were like, you know, this guy, this fucking guy who wrote this book about The Last of Us 1, he would understand. Like, no one around here seems to understand our problems with this game. But this guy would. Like, there's, there's no way. And they said, like, they were a little... Basically, they were like, you know what? After this game's out and after this thing's done, we gotta talk to this guy, you know? We gotta debrief with this dude, because we gotta tell someone, like, what this was like, what this experience was. And this dude will get it. But there was a part of them that was a little worried. Like, what if? As terrible as that game is, and it is just, like in your face terrible. <laughs> it's fucking shit. Not in a technical way. It's graphically beautiful, high fidelity, the gameplay is great, just the storyline, the characterization, the fucking motivations of people. Just dog shit. They were like, what if he likes it though? Like, what if we are crazy? <laughs> what if everybody likes this piece of trash? <laughs> but then it came out and no, everyone hated it. But yeah, the dude dropped me a line on Twitter and he told me this stuff. He's like, dude, <laughs> like, he apologized, which I thought was funny. He's like, we tried, we tried so hard. We did everything we could from the inside to try to steer this ship in a better direction and we just couldn't. But yeah, we ended up getting on a Zoom call and for like literally six and a half hours, we talked about that game and how great the first game was and everything that went wrong with the second game. And they told me all these stories about what it was like to work at the company and they've both left now. I was kind of hoping we could do it like on the record. I could write something about the second game, but they didn't want to do that. You know, they just, you know, it's understandable. They don't want to uh, be known as the people in the video game industry that just shit on their former employees or whatever. It's just, so it's just between us. But it was so cool to hear all the inside stories of what it was like and what this process was like and how, what it's like to, to be such a strange situation, to be like trapped. And it's like you're making Casablanca 2, but it's bad somehow. <laughs> Which maybe that shouldn't be surprising. Of course Casablanca 2 would be bad. But one of the stories that, you know, was most personally interesting to me is... There is a chapter of my Last of Us book where I talk about the sequel. There was very little information about the sequel yet. Really only one scene. But I did write about that scene and why I didn't like it and why I thought it was out of touch with the characters and how it was going in a bizarre direction and how I was like, I hope this is not actually 
part of the second game. What's going on here? So that was really all that they had as far as concrete feedback about the second game to offer. But one of the dudes, he brought it to the head writer of The Last of Us Part Two. He had a long meeting with the guy. He went through all his points of stuff that he had a problem with and it just, he really got nowhere, it didn't work. But part of that was, hey, this guy wrote a whole book about The Last of Us and here's what he thought about, about this weird direction that part two is already going off in right from the get-go. So just for some kind of outside perspective, like here's this, check this out. And it didn't work, it didn't, you know, it didn't affect anything, it didn't go anywhere. But I thought that was so crazy to learn that this book that I just wrote and put on my website, and mostly it seemed like people generally didn't care that much. It was just something for myself, just, you know, to help me level up as a writer, to help me feel more confident. But little did I know, fucking across the country, in another country, actually, <laughs> across the continent, my book was part of a meeting with the head guy on that game. Just that that potential was there. What if, you know, what if that meeting had gone better? What if the direction of the game had been aided by this dude's efforts? And what if my book had helped? You know, and I mean, it didn't, but, but that's so crazy to me that it reached that level. It reached that height. And I'm like, that's so fucking awesome. Cause it's just the same thing as the dude trying to get my Roger Swan documentary into a film festival. That couldn't have happened unless I finished the book, unless I put it out there. It's like these things are, these, it's like potential that's sputtering, you know? It doesn't actually work. The firework doesn't go off, but it almost does. You know, it almost gets there. And this is like what people always say about the 10-year overnight success. Eventually, one of these fucking things is going to go off. And it's so exciting to feel the, the pre-embers, you know? Ah, this thing, almost. Oh, this thing, almost. Probably this novel I'm writing now. Ah, almost, you know, it probably won't, but almost. I'll take the almost. The almost are great, dude. The almost are still like so, so much bigger and better than, I don't know, it's so weird because like people's idea of success, it's like, where's the, the top? How famous do you have to be to be famous? You know, you can be so fucking famous. But you can also be nobody. It's very easy to just be no one, to have no one care, to have nothing go anywhere. It's all relative, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. To me, just to me personally, the idea that I wrote a book about a video game and it got all the way to the desk of the guy working on the sequel to that video game and that there was a one in a million chance that it might have helped, it might have helped avert this disaster. And it didn't, but that's not my fucking fault. <laughs> that's Neil Druckmann's fault for writing a fucking pile of shit. It's so bizarre to write a whole book about how genius a guy is and then he just shits in your fucking mouth. But anyway, it's a different, <laughs> different topic for a different day, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that was amazing. It was so cool to meet those guys and to talk to them and just, again, I don't know, more connections that I've got. Who knows, man? Maybe someday. Maybe someday it'll be handy that I know those guys. And even just that day of just like, like, because I guess writing that book, it's all just, you just uh, theorize. I wonder what it's like there. I wonder what the development process was like. I wonder how it all worked. 
And then to just for six hours, just get to pick people's brains and just learn so many little details. And to learn that it's not at all what you thought it was. Fucking fascinating. Just great. So that's the update on uh, the nonfiction book. Again, just, just cool. Just awesome, man. Fucking awesome. Okay, the last thing I want to update on is other writing that I'm doing, supplementary writing besides the main novel. So one of the through lines of this podcast was I was working on the novel and I was struggling to try to work on more than one thing per day. And it was very, very hard because the analogy I came up with at the time that even now, two years later or whatever, really still seems appropriate is, all right, I work on my main novel How hard is it to just spend five or ten minutes later in the day working on a second piece of writing? It shouldn't be that hard, right? It's just five or ten minutes. But that five or ten minutes is the the tip of an iceberg, you know? The tip is all you see. The five minutes that I'm sitting down working on it is all that's visible to the outside world, to the naked eye. But underneath, there's a giant iceberg. And in this case underneath is my brain, you know? My brain is already filled up with this one iceberg of this fucking novel I'm trying to hold together in my, in my head. To work on a second thing is a second iceberg, a second gigantic piece of my head that's filled up with this other story. That writing a second story for five or ten minutes every day is not an easy ask. It's not an easy thing to do. And I think that's one of the neater aspects to this podcast is how that process has developed. Because by the time I started this podcast, I was already on the daily routine, you know? That's why for the first 50 episodes, I did a podcast every day just to demonstrate. Like, I finally have got this down and I wanted to demonstrate what it feels like, what the rhythm of it is. For 50 days, here we go. Here's me writing for 50 days straight. Now just repeat that for 50 more days and 50 more days and 50 more days. But there was no real chronicling of the process of how I got to that point. I was already at that point. But what did get chronicled inadvertently is this ability to work on multiple things a day. Because I would start to do it and then fail and then try again. And then at about a year into doing this podcast, I could just, I could do it. It's like I'd leveled up again. I'd increased the amount of weight I could carry, the amount of mental weight. I'd like increased the number of icebergs that could be in my brain. So on top of the novel, I would just work on other little things also. And I've brought up various different stories, you know, the romance story, the fucking text adventure video game, different little things. But the main one is the story The Knower that I talked about pretty extensively when I was in Japan. I can't remember what that episode was called. How to Have Ideas or something? Anyway, what's neat about this secondary thing I'm writing is that there's so much less pressure on it. The novel is quite a high-pressure thing. That's one reason why I only write a little bit each day is so I don't stress myself out and burn myself out because it's a a giant big project and there's... (laughs) All the worry about like, oh no, what do I do when it's done? How do I get it published? What if everyone hates it? But what's nice is that that pressure kind of shields me from feeling pressure about my secondary projects because they're just secondary. Who cares? 
it's just the other thing that I work on every day that I work on even less each day just do a really tiny little bit about and it's like the gravitational pull of the main story has weirdly like slingshotted me around to just make the second thing just easier it's just it's just happening inadvertently now you know it's not what I'm focused on but again it's just accruing it's like fucking proteins turning into sugar or whatever I don't know it's just it's just a process now that is just occurring so because it's kind of the side dish that I'm really not focusing on that much I didn't really realize how well it was going because just to uh jump to the side real quick so the way that I write is that I do believe in having an ending especially, and I believe in having a general outline, but I don't have a, a traditional outline, like point by point by point. What I do is I have all my notes, just my random notes that I thought of, just random thoughts, so this could be this, that could maybe be a thing, whatever. And I arrange those in a general order. So for my main novel, you know, it was like seven or eight major categories. For this story, it's a much simpler story. It's these two little girls trapped on an island, so it's just early ideas and then later ideas as one of the kids starts to kind of go crazy. And then in the middle was just at night the one girl tells the other girl stories. That's why it's called the knower because she's the one who knows the stories. She remembers the stories. She knows where they were at yesterday. She remembers the stuff. And she's the older kid. She's supposed to know how to survive on this island. She's just supposed to know things, but she's not that much older and she doesn't know anything. <laughs> so it's like this pressure the older kid is feeling to look after the younger kid. But that's it, just early notes, late notes, stories that the girl can tell, that's all. So I have an outline in the sense that I know what the ending is and then just for each chapter, if I have an immediate idea, I write that and if I don't, I just sift through those notes and I find stuff in the notes that can work, and then I build off of that. So it's like I have a clear direction, but there's a lot of malleability and variability in the writing. So I was just going along, working on that story, do-do-do-do-do. And just all of a sudden, I guess because I don't have a super clear outline, I didn't know when things were gonna shift from early to late. I didn't know how that was gonna happen. I was just going along and I just all of a sudden got to this chapter where I just realized like, whoa, wait a second, part one is done, <laughs> you know? I had this experience with the main novel too, where it's like five major parts and these, like, I don't know, the, the climactic moments sneak up on me. It's really weird. But in the case of The Knower, I just finished this chapter and I realized like, okay, we're set. We've spent three or four days with these girls on the island. Everything is established to the point that they have a source of food, they have a source of shelter, they have a routine. There's no one else on the island, there's no animals on the island, and no one's coming to save them, <laughs> you know, or no one has shown up yet. So I just realized all of a sudden, like, okay, if I was to write more now, more is just more. Like, it's, it's done. Part one is done. And I went through all my early notes and just saw if there was anything particularly important. And I moved a couple of them into the latter notes. 
But most of them, I'm like, well, whatever that stuff was, I guess I didn't need it because I never did use it. Just put it aside in a slush folder and that's the end of that. And like I said, I wasn't sure how we were going to get from early to late, but I realized it's just going to be a time jump. We spent all this time in the first three or four days. Now we're going to be part two, four months later. Just bam, just jump way ahead. Because that's a lesson I actually learned from that first Last of Us game. Sometimes the most effective way to get your characters from A to B is just to jump. Just to jump straight to the future and let the reader or the audience fill in the blanks because they will fill in the blanks better than you could. Like, instead of me trying to somehow, I mean, I don't even know how I would. How would I write my way through four months? You know, it would be crazy. And there's no need, like now that the situation is established, the characters are established, their personalities are established, it's very easy, theoretically, for a reader to just fill in those blanks, to fill in those four months, and to imagine the things that have happened in the meantime. And then I looked at it closer, because I'm like, like I always thought of it as the smaller story. You know, it's going to be my novella (laughs) rather than my novel. And I realized that just inadvertently, again, just by working on it the teeniest little bit as a secondary project, it has very short chapters. The chapters are like a page or two mostly, but I have 60 chapters. What the fuck? You know, I got like a hundred pages of this thing, if not more, probably more. This thing's not going to be as short as I thought it was going to be, <laughs> you know? It's already way bigger than I expected and like 60 chapters? How did I just write 60 chapters? But it's because I've been working on it for two years, you know? Like I've been working on it alongside the main novel. But it just feels like free work, like work that I just did by accident. I'm like, this is crazy. I can't believe how much I've got done. This is nuts. But what's weird still, what's double weird, is there's that great feeling of like, wow, wow, part one's just done. Whoa, (laughs) I didn't expect that. I got all this work done. It's way more than I thought. I'm just like, wow, bing, bang, boom, zippity, zam, everything's great. Until I realized like what this means, the full scope of this. Because as I described when I talked about this story, the real idea of this story, the real theme behind it is not pleasant. Like this early part, kind of weirdly exciting in that, you know, Lord of the Flies, Robinson Crusoe, Treasure Island way. That these girls got stranded on an island and it's like, yeah, that's bad. But I distinctly made it like not dangerous. Like I was saying, there's no animals. It's set in the near future. So they have this machine that just makes bland cliff bars basically. And they just have food. And there's just not a lot of danger because I didn't want that to be the struggle. I didn't want the physical side to be the struggle. The real point of this story, the real reason that I'm writing it, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna skirt past this quick because it just makes me upset to even think about it. I just hate talking about it. Is that my brother has schizophrenia and he's had schizophrenia for 20 fucking years and it's been horrifying and awful. Just the worst, the worst thing ever. But I thought, you know, 
it's an experience, right? It's something I can bring into my writing. Like, what if that's what happens to these people? What if the younger girl develops essentially schizophrenia and the older girl is just at a loss as to like, what do I do? So it's like psychological survival in this Lord of the Flies scenario. Nothing's going to eat them. They're not going to run out of food. Because just the, the nightmare of dealing with a crazy person is so much worse than any physical problem I've ever had in my life. Like, it's just, it's the worst. But the thing is, that was like, that's the... That's the, the big picture, right? Like, you know, when I conceptualized of this story, that was the idea. But for the last two years, I haven't been writing that. You know, I've got a bunch of notes for it, and I'd have little ideas. But the actual writing was like, let's try to find a water source, or let's go explore down by the fucking whatever, and let's just, let's just tell stories at night and stuff. Not particularly unpleasant. But now it's like four months later, and I mean, the idea is to just kind of like slap people in the face with how much worse things are. Where the schizophrenic kid, the kid who's unraveling, is like not wearing shoes anymore, and has got like, is all filthy and twigs in her hair, and like won't let the other kid look after her. And yells and screams anytime, you know, like, you try to fucking interact with her or get close to her. And she's like, basically to the sane kid, there's two of them on the island, but to the schizophrenic kid, who knows, you know? That kid is seeing things. That kid is, doesn't know who's real and who isn't. And it's just so immediately awful and immediately terrible and immediately unpleasant then I'm like oh what was I fucking thinking what the fuck what was I thinking why did I think this was a good idea this is just suddenly now this is like this is already my real life why do I want to write about this this is a fucking nightmare this is horrible this is not fun so just like in the same fucking in one moment, I'm like, wow, I'm done part one. I can't believe how well this is going. It's like an accidental second book that I'm just like half finished. And then in the very next beat, it's like, oh, wait a second, though. I have set myself up a horrifying trap of fucking misery. I don't want to go here every day. I don't want to work on this every day. I don't want to do this, <laughs> you know? Why did I think this was a good idea? So that's, that's just a weird one. That's just a weird one where it's like, I thought it was a success. I thought that was like, ah, oh man, here's an extra bonus cool thing that happened in 2020. But then I'm like, oh man, no, fuck. <laughs> yeah, write about schizophrenia. That's a good idea, you fucking idiot. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. Like, I really think maybe I should just shelve it. Like, maybe it is... Like, maybe this isn't something I should be writing at this point in my life, when I'm still, like, in the throes of it, you know? I don't know. 
Like, I don't even know where to begin with my brother. Like, what's going to happen when my parents pass away? Am I supposed to look after him? Because I fucking... He fucking threw a root beer in my face, like, a month ago. He's insane. I, I hate him. I hate dealing with him. But I know it's not his fault. He's fucking crazy, and he refuses to fucking... In Canada, you can't, like, forcibly commit people. You can't make them do what they don't want to do. So we can't get him on medication. We can't get him to talk to anybody. It's just horrible. It's 100% top-to-bottom terrible. So maybe, like, this isn't... Like, what kind of hubris is it that I think I can write about this now? Like, maybe this is something I should do when I'm, like, 80 years old, you know? When I've really got perspective on it. When I can really look back on the tragic tale of my dumb fucking brother. So, anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, like, talking myself out of it right now. I'm like, yeah, I should stop working on this. (laughs) I don't like it. I don't want to do this. Because even, like, my my fucking main novel, like... Like, I don't want to do stuff that's just a downer. I want it to be kind of exciting. Like, even though... My main novel is about this, like, depressed war orphan... But it's kind of like that happy when it rains, you know, kind of fucking... Smashing pumpkins, fucking the world as a vampire, you know? (laughs) Feels good to feel bad type of thing. And even though the whole fucking story is about her blowing up a space station, but she's not going to kill anybody, you know, it's still kind of like a popcorn version of, like, subversive fucking rebellion. It's like, it's just for show. It's just, it's a lot of flexing. It's not actual horror and terror and bad shit happening. Where this story about the two girls on the island, it just is. There's no nice way to spin this. There's no way to make it like a fun... ...adventure in any way. It's just fucking depressing. It's just fucking sad and awful. I was like, what the fuck were you thinking, dude? Why in the fuck... Why did you even start working on this? What the hell did you think was gonna happen? But I guess it's that I never really thought I was gonna get here, you know? I don't know, it's just had ideas for a story, and I was just working on it. And it's like, eh, you know, I guess we'll just work on it on the side and see what happens. And then, all of a sudden, whoa, hey, buddy, you did it. You're halfway through. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, nightmare zone. Ah, you ready to face up to every horrible fucking problem in your family? Are you ready to do that? Because that's where you are now, you stupid dick. That's what you set up for yourself, you fucking moron. Ugh. Ugh, how terrible. (laughs) It's a shame, too, because it's turning out so good. It's such a cool book, but... Because I guess, I mean, that's the thing, too, is, like, I gotta, uh... I can only write things that I feel are psychologically real, you know? I don't want to fucking fake people out and just be... Like, there's no solution here. She's not gonna fucking find some berries and leaves and mix them together and make a magical fucking potion that fixes a kid's schizophrenia. It's just gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I just, I don't want to do that, man. I don't want to write that. That's fucking, ugh. 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 (laughs) Ugh.
Yeah, I guess it's weird too because I didn't have a clear notion of how I was going to get from point A to point B. I just knew I had the early notes and the late notes. It wasn't until I got here that I'm like, oh, you know what should happen is a big time jump. It should be a big just bucket of cold water in the face of just like, boom, whatever fun you were having, whatever excitement there was in this story, it's gone now. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm doing that to myself too. It's like, I'm just off the deep end. I'm just over my head all of a sudden. Ugh, cause like the way I've got it lined up in my little notes, like it just gets real bad. Like, I think I've said it before, but that statistic, you know, of like people are kind of scared of crazy people or drug addicts or whatever, but, but those people are way more statistically likely to be the victims of violence than to perpetrate violence. And I've just been there with my brother so many times because he's just, he's, I mean, I don't know, he's like not a reasonable person. He's just, he's a whirling dervish. He's a demon. He's the worst. And like when he throws a drink in your face, what am I supposed to do? I want to break his fucking face. I want to drown him. <laughs> but you can't, you know, you just can't. But man, he's just like the least sympathetic, crazy person you could ever imagine. Like, he's just... So anyway, it's obviously going to be like that in the story, too. It's just going to come to blows. It's going to be like, I can't deal with you anymore, crazy kid. I'll just tell you the ending, because fuck it, man. <laughs> At this point, I don't even think I'm going to write it. Eventually, rescue comes, but the younger girl, being crazy, runs away and just runs off into the woods. So older girl runs off after her, and it just finally escalates to, like, smashing her head with a big rock. Because it's just like, fuck you, you fucking little crazy fuck. Fuck you, fucking come with me to the goddamn rescue helicopter, you fucking asshole. Fuck you. Bam. Rock to the head, I hope you're not dead drag you the fuck back, <laughs> you know? Just like, I can't fucking handle this anymore. And then the rescue guy, you know, they bandage up this unconscious little crazy kid and, and the rescue guy just says like, you should be proud. You should be proud of yourself that you, you protected your friend, you know, you kept your friend alive. And the older girl just balls her head off, you know? Oh. I guess it's because I have this kind of fantasy of like, you know, because obviously I bring up a lot of times like movies, you know, I visualize stories as a movie. And it always like rubs me the wrong way in movies when like the second the credits hit, people are just up and they just leave, you know, they're just like, oh, whatever, move on to my next little neurotic part of my day. Where like my, my fantasy about really any story I write is if it were a movie, I want those credits to hit, and I know that 99 people out of 100 will just 
do that very thing. They'll just get up and they'll get out and they won't think twice about it and it will mean nothing to them. But there'll be that one person who just can't get out of their seat because they're just crying uncontrollably, you know? I want to find that one person that's had that one experience that no one has ever talked about or no one has, you know, addressed, no one has ever touched that little sore spot inside them. I just want to touch it. Because it hurts and it feels bad, but at the same time, at least you know somebody fucking saw what was happening. Somebody else knows what that's like. But yeah, like I said, I just I don't think I'm ready for this shit. <laughs> this is something that maybe needs to come later. No matter how old you get, it's just not old enough, man. <laughs> like, I mean, writing is definitely just something that age is certainly not a problem. Like, there's so many things in life that you feel like, oh, I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old for this, getting too old for that. Writing is the opposite. You're too young for this. You're too young for that. You need more experience. You need more perspective. And yeah, there's certain things that I'm just seeing, like, not nearly old enough yet. <laughs> not there yet. Fuck me. All right, let's pick it up a little bit for fucking... Play a song that is not a big, dour, fucking sad sack fest. I want to play Freeze Me by Death From Above. Has the line ringing in the new year in it. That's good enough. That's a good enough reason, and it's a great song. Thank you for listening to the fucking... Psychology Hour with Keith. <laughs> I hope everything's going well for you, whoever you might be. Fucking just keep on keeping on, man. See you next time.